Hey everyone, welcome back to iHeart Animation on iHeart Movies. My name is Jonathan North, and in today's episode we're looking at the 2014 Cartoon Network miniseries, Over the Garden Wall. My original thought with this episode was to do it around Halloween, since it's kind of become a new holiday classic for some people. They view it kind of along the same lines as It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, just as it's like this Halloween classic that must be watched every year. But for me, while I totally see the Halloween thing, and I probably watch it about every year myself around that time, it almost feels more like an all-around autumnal series, because yes, this does have the spooky atmosphere that most people are looking for in a good Halloween special, but it almost feels like the fall ambiance is the overriding aesthetic, especially when it makes its way towards winter at the end of the series. You have the falling leaves, turkeys, harvest, even just the general color palette of the series just feels like the kind of show you can watch anytime during the fall holiday season. So instead of doing it as a Halloween episode, I split the difference and it's now going up partway between Halloween and Thanksgiving, right in the middle of fall, leading into winter, just like the series. And joining me to break down every episode of the show is my cousin Sarah, who I was kind of shocked actually liked this series. Like, a lot. Sarah isn't really into a lot of modern animation, and she doesn't usually go for creepy stuff. I never even really planned to have her watch this. I originally just brought it over to share with her sister Sasha, who shares a bit more of my taste, especially when it comes to modern animation, but at some point I ended up telling Sarah about the show, and this is probably at least two or three years after it initially aired, and she was actually kind of curious, so I played her the first episode thinking that would probably be enough for her. And somehow she ended up liking it, and that led to another episode and another, and we ended up watching the entire thing. And at this point, I think we've watched and re-watched the whole series at least two or three times in the past few years. And I personally have watched it even more times than that, and I'm not a person who watches and re-watches things all that often, unless I really like them. So you know I have to like this. And this really is one of my favorite recent animated series, and I've wanted to cover it for a while, so I'm really excited to finally be able to do that now. Okay, I think that's all for now. Let's get into this extra-long episode of iHeart Animation, talking about every episode of Cartoon Network's Over the Garden Wall. excited about this one me too more than usual there's just something about this series that i really like and i was pleasantly surprised that you liked it as much <laughs> as you did <laughs> kind of like the czechoslovakian alice or whatever well that would that one i would say is more of a surprise than this. yeah that is surprising <laughs> but still either way i i really liked this one and I'm glad you did too. I think it's when you look at it from the perspective of history. Mm. Because that's what lures me in mm -hmm. the most. And there is so there are so many little nuggets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a weird, dreamy mashup of nuggets and whimsy. And so when you have whimsy, history, humor, I mean mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so, for those who don't know, but if you're listening to this, I would hope you know, Over the Garden Wall is about two boys who are lost in the woods, a woods called The Unknown, which we don't know a whole lot about. You kind of discover as the series goes on. It's from 2014, so it's not that old. 
and the boys are played by Elijah Wood and Colin Dean, and I don't know a whole lot about Colin Dean. He's a, he's a lot younger, but Elijah Wood, of course, Frodo. Colin, Colin Dean being an absolutely adorable voice on here. Mm-hmm. Now, this series was written by Patrick McHale. I believe that's his name. And looking at him, I'd have to dig a little bit deeper, but I feel like he's kind of the darker side of a kindred spirit for me. (laughs) Like, he probably likes some darker stuff than I do, but man, the Americana in here. The, (laughs) I, yeah, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Well, I guess we could go episode by episode and talk about things as they come up. I think it's a good idea. And it also... If you haven't watched this series and you don't want to know what happens, you need to stop listening because we're going to talk it over, pick it apart, and have fun with it. And if you like zero surprises, listen. But even with as much as we're going to pick it apart, you'll probably find stuff yourself if you keep rewatching because it's just so loaded with things. Every time I watch this, I I notice either something that I'd forgotten about or something that I didn't notice before. There's Mm -hmm. just so much hidden in this show. Mm -hmm. In the beginning episode, something that I didn't really think about was that it starts with all of these little vignettes of characters that come up later Mm -hmm. which are clues to what's going on it's so layered Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things the beginning especially where if you watch it again after you've already watched it yes then then you'll then you'll see what the significance is Mm -hmm. or at least some more of the significance Mm -hmm. yeah and while this montage is happening you have the frog singing a song and I think this happens in just about every episode. The frog sings the opening song. And I don't know who this is specifically, but Jack Jones, I believe is his name, is the voice mm-hmm. of the frog. He was like a staple of like 60s and 70s variety shows, including the Carol Burnett show. What, like doing some of the music? Or? <laughs> yeah, just the music. Which his act. voice has that sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the voice of the frog. <laughs> it's great. Which I thought maybe he was the son of a famous Welsh singer like no i don't think that's the case he's a different jones so you have the two kids wirt and greg lost in the woods and it starts with a recurring joke with greg trying to name his frog except at the beginning he's listing off the worst names that you could name the frog which i thought was hilarious this kid has the greatest sense of humor i love greg's look on life on everything. He's just so random and funny, and I love him. He's too calm for a normal human being, <laughs> but you just have to accept it, I guess. Yeah, he is extremely calm. With all the stuff that they go through, it doesn't really seem to it's affect him at all. just a little Mr. Magoo. <laughs> so, they're wandering through the woods. Greg is leaving a candy trail, and they come across a woodsman. And this woodsman is kind of creepy-ish. He's voiced by Christopher Lloyd. He's a great voice for that part. Yes, perfect. And he's warning them about the beast. The beast is in the woods and they need to be aware of the beast. Trying to protect them by taking them to the mill where he is living. Mm -hmm. Now here's an important point. When they come up to the mill, the woodsman himself says, 
I found this place abandoned and I'm using it for, you know, my purposes. Mm -hmm. So that's not his house. And I think that's important later on. Like, he thinks... Is it okay for me to go into the, the lantern right away? Or do we need to wait till the episode? Well, he talks about the lantern a little bit. You don't get into too much right here, but whatever you want to say, go ahead. Okay, well, right off the bat... He thinks that the soul of his daughter is in that lantern, and to keep his daughter alive, he has to keep burning the Edelwood in it. And later on, the Beast is like, do you really want to go back to that empty house? So the indication would be that he doesn't realize that, like, he hasn't been back to the house to see whether his daughter is actually there. I'm wondering oh, if I he... didn't even think about that. <laughs> so I wonder if he went out looking for her, was encountered by the beast who said this is where she is, and gave him the option of looking after her, quote-unquote. Mm. Because at the end, spoiler, 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 when he goes back to his house, she just comes out of the house. Yeah. So this is what makes sense of like, oh... She was probably fine the whole time. He probably went out looking for her and got totally deceived and decided, I'm going to, here's this gristmill, I'll use this to help keep her alive and maybe mm -hmm. traumatized not wanting to go back to the empty house. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. But it's easy to miss mm -hmm. at the beginning. You just assume, okay, this is where this guy lives. Unless you're paying attention to, oh, he, you found this place? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's probably put in even more dire straits, at least in his mind, when it gets wrecked, which is what is about to happen. Yes. They encounter a beast, not the beast, because something has been following their candy trail. Yes. <laughs> A giant, hideous wolf with glowing eyes. <laughs> and this is another point where Greg's look on life. It's, it's the perfect break from what would be a terrifying scene. Absolutely horrifying, <laughs> like horror movie worthy. The the wolf is, he's like opening his mouth, He's a, like he's going to eat him in this barrel. And Greg looks up at him, you have beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like that's going to stop him, like you have beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the way he thinks about things. <laughs> kind of makes me think of that one movie with... Amy Adams, like, oh, it's not ever after, it's the, those one Enchanted? Yeah, where the homeless guy comes up to him, like, you have a really nice smile, or something like that, <laughs> you are not a very nice old man. <laughs> anyway, uh, but no, everything's getting wrecked, and how do they fix it? They didn't really fix it. Well, not the gristmill, the dog. They end up climbing up onto the roof. And the wolf bursts through the ceiling onto the roof after them. And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but the wolf ends up falling down off the roof into the wheel of the mill. And you see, Greg had put a piece of candy in his candy trail on top of a black turtle. The black turtles can have a bad effect. The dog ate the black turtle, turned into this hideous beast, but when the dog falls, the turtle gets spewed out and... He's returned to a normal dog, which, another thing, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss that this is Beatrice's dog, mm -hmm. and we'll get to who Beatrice is. 
Technically, Beatrice was in this episode very briefly because she meets them right before she meets the they meet the woodsman. And, okay, and right. Then she flies away. Right. Yes. But she's she has like a proper introduction in the next episode. Okay, and so the woodsman is distressed over the state of his repurposed gristmill and sends them off to find a village to get help. He was trying to help them, but they're kind of left on their own in mm-hmm. in the dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could be hard on the woodsman for that, but he's probably not in his right mind. He's kind of traumatized himself, so... I, he may not have felt like he could properly keep them safe. I don't know. He, I don't know yeah. what all was going on there. But this is also a dreamlike state where people could question whether all of this was real or yeah. a dream, too. Yeah. And dreams don't have to make total sense. That's another thing. Okay. We're going to get to this later. But there is a possibility that throughout this whole thing, Greg and Wirt are basically drowning in a pond and fighting for life, and this whole dreamlike state is, I don't know, either reality or a metaphor or some kind of purgatory, quote-unquote. And that would kind of make sense as to making decisions as to whether they are going to keep hope and survive. But I totally want to think of this as its own reality Mm -hmm. as well. So... (laughs) People can go crazy with however they want to interpret that. (laughs) Okay. So, moving on to episode two, which is called Hard Times at the Huskin' Bee. (laughs) Husking corn, if you're wondering what a Huskin' Bee is. (laughs) You have Wirt and Greg. This is where they meet Beatrice. That's another thing. This is one of those things where it depends on whether you want to infuse meaning into it or not. Beatrice was the name of... Somebody who was a guide for Dante through heaven. Like in Dante's Inferno, I believe. Oh, okay. So she acts as their guide. And her name is Beatrice. So whether you want to make anything of that or not, (laughs) you can. Which would also help to back up the whole, uh, you know, fighting with death type Mm -hmm. thing. Anyway. That makes sense. Even if it's not supposed to be a total meaning it's definitely a reference it has to be a reference to that good chance yeah anyways beatrice (laughs) is freed from a bush and she says that she owes them a favor which honestly i bet she just stuck herself in that bush yes (laughs) that's what i think she wants to lead them to adelaide who is the good woman of the forest or the good woman of the woods or something Uh something like that She's supposed to be someone who can help them. So they're going to go find Adelaide, but they end up finding this village called Pottsfield. And in this village, there are lots of people dressed as pumpkins dancing around this giant pumpkin maypole thing. We've got to talk about turkeys. There are turkeys in this episode. See, this episode, they infuse humor, but honestly, it's pretty dark. Yeah. One of the inspirations that the creator of this series used, which is also another kindred spirit type thing, were vintage postcards. So when I was... That makes perfect sense. I've seen a lot of weird vintage postcards. So when I was researching this series, 
I looked up Halloween postcards and there were not only jack-o'-lanterns, there were pumpkin people. In this episode, it's loaded with pumpkin people. Hmm. And lots of black cats. You find out later, and sort of at the beginning, that there is a black cat involved. Black cats can also be said, I think, to be guides of the dead. So if you want to go for that dark reference, please, people, adopt black cats. They need love. (laughs) I got too many um, inappropriate references. Of course, if I had seven black cats, people might judge me. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. People need to... Anyway, there is a black cat day that encourages adoption of black cats. Little side note. Um, But, so, okay, great, fine. That makes sense as far as references go. But what about the turkeys? People didn't talk that much about the turkeys. In this episode, you have a turkey who's like asleep on a table <laughs> practically in a weird way he just looks at them and he makes sort of weird jiggly fleshy noises but my weird my <laughs> but my favorite thing one of my favorite things in this whole series is the turkey carriage that is so whimsical and fun a little carriage being pulled by two turkeys mm-hmm. and people don't really want to talk about this they don't want to infuse some weird probably inaccurate meaning into the turkeys why does no one seem to care that much about the turkeys <laughs> i mean some people they're probably like oh yay turkeys and just i love turkeys <laughs> they're they're a really cool american symbol and america or no america they're amazing birds so I already came in biased <laughs> and I wasn't finding that much until I decided to Google turkey, vintage turkey postcards. Once again, all of a sudden I'm seeing turkeys not only pulling carriages, there was one where they were driving a motor car, there <laughs> are ones where they're pulling a pumpkin on wheels, uh, one or more where there is I think at least a couple I saw were sort of a little pumpkin carriage filled with bounty. One of them had not only bounty, but an American flag and a little boy holding a football. So he had to have gotten his imagery also from postcards for this Mm. episode. And it's almost like this interesting mashup of both Thanksgiving and Halloween postcards. Mm -hmm. So it was this little aha (laughs) yeah that makes perfect sense so you could almost call this the postcard episode (laughs) yeah absolutely one of my favorite things the little turkey carriage so so fun and not a totally fresh idea from them they were merely bringing back something really cool Mm -hmm. from like a hundred years ago there you go (laughs) (laughs) there's probably there's a lot of things in this where that's Probably not a fresh idea, but they're reusing it and they're refreshing bringing, ideas. That they're bringing back something cool for us to mm-hmm. think about. This episode also, you know, it has autumn leaves. It shows the geese flying. It has a little cricket chirping. These things that are so easy for people to take for granted, but when you focus in on them, it's so cozy. Mm-hmm. It's so autumnal, and and one of his inspirations was. You know, autumn in New England. So, yeah, make sure to relax and enjoy that part of the episode before you're maybe thoroughly creeped out. (laughs) 
yeah, once they're in the with the pumpkin people, they start saying some weird things like, aren't you here a little bit too early? Which I appreciate that instead of making it a, like, you are here in our grasp, it's like, this is the fun place for the dead people. What are you doing here? Yeah, you don't quite know what they're talking about at no, first. No, But then they are... I guess, tried and sentenced. And it seems really creepy and scary at first because you have this giant pumpkin maypole thing that's alive mm -hmm. and all of these ribbons that they've been tying around it are acting like arms. So it's kind of like a pumpkin octopus <laughs> monster thing. And he's talking like they've committed some grave sin by trespassing and crushing some pumpkins by accident. Absolutely wonderful voice actor. for He's a singer... Chris Isaac, I he, believe. He has the most wonderful bass voice. Mm -hmm. You come in here and you trample our crops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he has a really great, memorable, perfect voice for this giant pumpkin creature. And so they're sentenced to manual labor and have their little shackle on their <laughs> feet. Even the bird, which is does not make sense and is very cute. They're supposed to be digging up this field, and they don't really know why. But they did other work before that, too, like harvesting. Oh, that's true. But I guess their last thing of the day is digging up this field. And Beatrice suggests that they are... Doesn't she suggest that they're digging their own graves? Yes. <laughs> but here's another reference. Okay, before you totally find out that these are dead people, they're in Pottsfield, which... If you go into the fandom or whatever, they'll say this is a reference to Potter's Field where people were, poor people were buried en masse, sometimes tens of thousands of people, in fields because they couldn't afford a proper burial. So it makes sense that they're out in a field digging up unmarked graves. Mm. Yeah. I'd heard of some of that, but I never really looked into it too much beyond just the reference to the name Potter's Field. Which, on on that note, it's actually, like, this is not how the afterlife works. But <laughs> but it's it's kind of sweet in that all these people knew who these people were. So even though the graves mm -hmm. were unmarked and they were poor people, they're being rejoined mm -hmm. in the afterlife. Happily rejoined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Greg digs up a skeleton, then they all freak out. I don't think Greg freaks out that much. I don't know that Greg even noticed. <laughs> he was more excited about finding buried treasure, which he, that's what he thinks the skeleton is. So, yeah, did he realize that he dug, he probably realized that he dug up a skeleton, but I think he took off before well, it rose up, or did when he? the pumpkin people come in and start talking to him, Wirt is freaking out. Beatrice frees them, but Wirt doesn't realize that he's free. Mm -hmm. And then Beatrice and Greg run off. Mm -hmm. Well, Wirt is still there. Mm -hmm. And that's when you find out that these skeletons that they've dug up, they're coming back to life and they're being welcomed into the community. And, and it's not a terrifying situation. Dressed in vegetables. Yes. And he's free to go, whereas he mm -hmm. thinks that he's being held prisoner. Mm -hmm. And they're happy to have him stay, but... Off they go. Mm -hmm. And they, they bid them for a while. I think they say something like, you'll you'll join us someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Enoch also may have had some significance, but it's one of those things where you can put e significance to Enoch or just take it as an old-timey name. Mm-hmm. 
Next, we come to one of my favorite episodes. I'm sure it's one of your favorites, too, because, at least for the music, School Town Follies. Uh, I, I haven't thoroughly analyzed I have not thoroughly analyzed which one is my favorite but this has lovable elements definitely this is one we reference a lot that's why I was yeah it's it was very catchy <laughs> yes the music is so great so they're still wandering through the woods and they come across a school full of animals and this teacher Miss Langtree who seems to have some emotional issues. <laughs> This episode, it seems very, the costuming seems very early 1900s to 19-teens. So there are all these different sort of historical settings, whereas the episodes before this seem far more 17 or 1800s. This one seems more early 1900s. And what about the animal designs? Were they... Did you find out if they were specifically based on anything? Because I had theories, but I don't know. I would say that, too, at the latest, maybe 20s or 30s. But for Miss Langtree, with, she has sort of a cottage loaf hairstyle, which is, you know, and, and shirt, shirt waist, you know, like the white shirt and the skirt. So that's very early 1900s to 1910s. And then, of course, her boyfriend that keeps coming up has, Jimmy Brown. has uh, one of those mustaches that mm. would be classic to that period of time. Well, I was wondering if the animals were partly inspired by any of those old postcards that you'd mentioned. Because I know there's animals and clothes in a lot of, not just postcards, but like people would dress up taxidermied animals in little clothes. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a little weird. The main thing, though, I was thinking that they looked like, not exactly, but they reminded me of Beatrix Potter characters. Oh, sure. I'd have to look again. I remember one of them, one or more of them, I think, having a little cap that looks kind of 1920s. And mm -hmm. But no, it's very whimsical because she's supposed to be teaching these animals to read and write and doing a good <laughs> turn and it's adorable. But she's having trouble focusing because she's lamenting the fact that her boyfriend, Jimmy Brown, has disappeared. And there's a gorilla on the loose. Yes, there's a gorilla on the loose. It's such random problems that she's so upset about. that The problems are not equal in scope, but she's lamenting them all equally. It's just so funny. Talking about the school might get closed. Jimmy Brown's run off. There's a gorilla on the loose. It's like if it doesn't, you know, doesn't rain, but it pours. But the song that she's singing while she's all upset is just so catchy. And if you watch the episode, you don't get a whole lot of it. But you can find the full song on YouTube. And it is great. And it's great. long. It's long. And <laughs> she, she goes through the whole alphabet yes. and then into some numbers. And yes. It's so great. If you haven't, you need to look up that song because yeah. it's so much fun. Starts A is for the apple that he gave to me, but I found a worm inside. <laughs> B is for beloved that I called to him before he said goodbye. Something like that. And C, see what he did to me. <laughs> did, the, see what he did, that's D. Did it to poor old me. Why must I be such an emotional fool? <laughs> F is for the gentleman I thought he was. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it goes on and on. It's a great song. I love it. 
And that style, there are different musical styles throughout this, all based off of old-timey music. They didn't mm-hmm. try and infuse pop music into this whole setting. No, I love I love that they did that because it it sets it apart from other more modern cartoons. It gives it its own feel. I just I love yeah. the musical choices in this. Even even if it's not music that you listen to on a day-to-day basis, it's a nod to a lot of Americana. Mhm. And it is historically interesting and the main people in charge of the music were the blasting company and if you look them up and you read about what music inspires them or that they like you can see those influences running throughout and it comes from a place of of knowledge and love mm-hmm. for old things mm-hmm. that aside back to miss langtree yes well meanwhile while she's Inside lamenting this, you see that there's actually a gorilla outside. A very ugly, not realistic looking gorilla. (laughs) And it's chasing Greg and some other little animals around. uh, Because only Wirt is inside because he's being stubborn to try and prove a point to Beatrice. Who told him that he just does whatever anybody tells him to do. So he's trying to prove a point to her by sticking around and doing whatever the teacher tells him to do. And at some point, Greg makes his way inside, and it's mealtime, where you get another great song, Potatoes and Molasses. Like, if there's only one song that you remember from this, not because it's the most poetic, but because it's the most catchy, this might be the one that you go Uh away singing. (laughs) Yes. The thought of putting molasses on potatoes sounds horrible to me, but I love this song. (laughs) It's very cute. And then you have the animals playing instruments, mm-hmm. which the school teacher's father comes in, and this is just not... This not, isn't what the school was for. takes away the instruments, and he seems like the bad guy, but he's really not, as you find <laughs> out later. Yes, they're all sent to bed, but they sneak out in the middle of the night, and the old man Langtree is in the woods lamenting everything that's going on. And he's wearing this giant coat. Like, he's really skinny, but he looks enormous because of this coat. That I don't know why they did that. It just, it's just one of his standout features to me. Probably to make him look intimidating at first, but then to realize that he's not. He's yeah, really probably. a vulnerable person. And it's all this plot exposition. of like, now he has to, you know, he's talking to himself. He has to sell these instruments to keep the school going. And then, then there's... Jimmy Brown and the gorilla, and, like, they're not having a good time. But Greg has his own plan. He says, let's go steal his stuff. <laughs> but he had, a good, he had a good purpose for it. Yes. As he gets up a benefit concert with the animals, so the animals get to keep their music and the school. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of this concert, the gorilla attacks, but it falls over and the head falls off. And it's Jimmy Brown. He's been stuck inside a gorilla costume for I don't know how long because he got a job in the circus so he could buy a wedding ring. (laughs) For Miss Langtree. Yes. Which, that is one of the beginning vignettes. You see a Uh circus and you see a gorilla in the circus. So just know that that's what's happening there. Mm -hmm. 
when it all works out. This is one of the most positive episodes, really, because, yeah. I mean, they're all positive, I guess, in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> but with this one, it's almost its own little story within the story where, yeah, you could almost set it apart, where every, it, you have you have the dilemma and it works out and they're happy. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, within about 11 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these episodes are all pretty short, but when you watch them all together, it feels like a long movie made up of shorter scenes. Something like that. It doesn't really feel like that long of a movie either, but... Probably... About if probably about 110 minutes, eh? Yeah, probably. Because there's 10 episodes. Yeah. So, not quite two hours. But they're so interesting that it's easy to keep potato chip. Mm -hmm. potato chip mentality keep going with them oh and did you have more to say about the episode three no okay episode four i have stuff to say <laughs> about this one yeah, i think this one's called songs of the dark lantern or song of the dark lantern this one they come to this inn the feast is upon me <laughs> They've yes. stowed away in a cart. Yes. And the guy driving it is freaking out because he says the beast is upon him, which you find out later probably is totally accurate. Mm -hmm. And they fall out of this cart at this creepy tavern or inn or bar or whatever you want to call it. And it's full of people who remind me of early animated characters, but especially one in particular. Here's the catch, though. This is so colonial. Like the feel like the building looks like a New England old New England building and the way the people are dressed presented inside of that building is very colonial. But then you get a very interesting 1930s mashup with colonial days or I don't know, probably extend into maybe 1700s if you want to just distinguish well i don't know if they would have had maybe uh, yeah maybe put it at 1700s maybe for this one somewhere in there go, go ahead <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say the the one that stands out to me the most is the main innkeeper the one who she looks like Betty Boop. <laughs> yeah, her eyelashes look like Betty Boop. She looks like a colonial version of Betty Boop. She talks and sings like Betty Boop. Mm -hmm. I have another weird clinky dink for you <laughs> to okay. go along with that, which is probably a stretch, but I kind of want it to be a thing. Okay, you know the highwayman? Yeah, the In song. this scene, there is a highwayman who sings this creepy song and does this weird dance about how, you know, basically what a bad guy he is. How he makes ends meet. Okay, maybe this is not based off of that. But somebody was likening the highwayman's song and dance to a 1933 Betty Boop cartoon where... Coco the Clown sings and dances. Okay, stick with me. The Highwayman, his song sounds a little bit to me like Louis Armstrong. This is where I'm adding my own stuff because Louis Armstrong did a song 
1928 called St. James Infirmary Blues, which has its own long history and didn't really originate with Louis Armstrong. The Highwayman's singing style sounds more like Louis Armstrong to me. But this 1933 Betty Boop cartoon where it's it's Snow White, but weird Betty Boop Snow White. They have a part where Coco the Clown is following behind Betty Boop, frozen in a block of ice, basically sleeping like Snow White. Yes, it's weird. Snow White is weird. <laughs> they rotoscoped Cab Calloway, which if you don't know who that is, he's like super famous, dancing, and he sang St. James Infirmary Blues for this cartoon. So somebody felt that the Highwayman was based off of this cartoon where Coco was dancing, which makes the connection even stronger for inspiration if you have this Betty Boop character along with this other mm. Betty Boop character. Uh, it's it's weird. Maybe they didn't have that in mind, but they probably did. I wouldn't be surprised. It's just this very strange mashup of jazz age slash cartoon influence along with 1700s. <laughs> But yeah, just keep it in mind. And I have not watched the whole Betty Boop cartoon, but I have watched the scene with Cab Calloway. It is bizarre and interesting at the same time. <laughs> you could say that about a lot of Betty Boop cartoons. There's some bizarre stuff in Betty Boop. Uh, yeah, the somebody could write a book, The Messed Up History of Betty Boop. <laughs> Anyway, the main plot of this episode is... <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Let's just talk about Betty Boop. Anyway, <laughs> main plot. <laughs> All these townspeople that are in this tavern want to know who they are. So they all introduce themselves as the butcher, the midwife, the master and apprentice. And they want to know who Wirt and Greg are. They like type of person that they are. Which I think is really interesting. How much emphasis was put in this episode on identity. Mm. Like that was one of the main points mm -hmm. and trying to figure out specifically who Wirt was, what his part in life was. I think that's a thread that sort of is in the background of the whole series. Wirt trying to figure out in the grand scheme of things, who he is. Mm. First they want to have him as the young lover because he's trying to get to Adelaide's. Which they don't even know who Adelaide is, but they hear the name Adelaide. It's like, oh, a girl's name. He must like a girl. And one of your favorite songs is sung at this point. It's very catchy. The one about, what is it? Little boys going courting or something. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's one of my favorite songs, but that specific line about the wedding day does pop through my head more than... It's catchy. <laughs> yeah. And it's a really, it's sung in a really weird style. And yes. Not creepy, just funny and silly. Mm hmm But he's trying to explain that, no, that's not the case. He needs help. They're trying to figure out where to go. And they now think that he's a pilgrim. He sort of is, but not really. <laughs> yeah. If you want to infuse lots of extra meaning into it, you could. Mm -hmm. But... Somewhere in here, he mentions the woodsman and the beast, and they all freak out, and then there's a song about the beast, and... 
you kind of get some more backstory on the beast here. And this is where you find out about the lantern. Uh, he, the beast turns people into trees so that they can be made into oil so that they can be burnt in the lantern. Which the woodsman, I don't think, realizes. I don't know that anybody fully understands the beast or the woodsman, but now that they have this connection in their head, they think that the woodsman is the beast. Which is not so. Mm -hmm. So they're leaving, and meanwhile, while all this is happening, Beatrice has met a horse, Fred the Horse, voiced by Fred Stoller. I don't know if they named the horse after the voice actors or what, but... <laughs> He has a very distinct voice, so they flee when they see the woodsman. Once they have fled, you have the beast appearing to the woodsman, and he says, be sure to keep the lantern lit, or your daughter's flame will go out. And that's where you... But I think it's also in this episode where the woodsman is trying to warn the boys about what does the beast feed on those that lose hope? There's this really poetic type, intense warning that he's trying to give to the boys, but they get away from him. Mm. And it helps to set up this idea that the beast, I suppose he could be described as lost hope and despair personified. Mm. And it's only when people lose hope and despair that he can consume them. Mm. So it's really rather deep. And it keeps making me think of Pilgrim's Progress because there's this part where Christian and I think he's, uh, he's with Hopeful at the time accidentally end up as prisoners in Doubting Castle under the oppression of Giant Despair. And Giant Despair has a nasty wife. I can't remember what her metaphor was and just how they have to try and bear up and not be crushed by despair and how they finally make their escape and they're it's, it's very you know allegorical metaphorical but the beast makes me think of that scenario of needing to keep up hope and 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 escape despair mm -hmm. um yeah little companion reading if you want to <laughs> check that out <laughs> very very good it's not the same thing, but <laughs> it's from the, probably the six, yeah, from the 1600s, so could have kind of be loosely tied in. <laughs> it could have been something that was maybe a vague inspiration, maybe something that they had to read in school that stuck in the back of their mind. I kind of doubt it, but I like making the connection. <laughs> <laughs> but it is an important point, as far mm -hmm. as the beast is concerned, because those who, who keep hope are not consumed by him. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of that episode, and the next episode is called Mad Love, and here we're introduced <laughs> to Quincy Endicott. Oh, which I believe one of the tombstones in the graveyard later on, when you when you have a flashback, mm -hmm. is, is Endicott. So that's weird. Um, <laughs> and he's voiced by John Cleese. Which is awesome! John Cleese does such a wonderful job on this episode. Yes. He, he's just... Uh, and it's it's child friendly ish, uh, you know, if they're not scared. But you know, John Cleese isn't always child friendly. <laughs> but but on here, he's so great. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed about this, 
like you noticed with the turkeys in Hard Times of the Huskin Bee, there's a lot of peacocks in this episode. Which I would think would be a reference to um, probably British influence wealthy people owning peacocks. I think that was a thing of wealthy okay. people owning peacocks. I feel like on... It's one of those sounds. If you're watching a period drama and, you know, the English people on their estate or whatever, you might hear this little... In the background. <laughs> if you hear that weird call... That's a peacock. I have been woken up by one at a and b at who knows what hour in the morning. I'm not <laughs> sure that I'm dying to own those, but they're gorgeous. If you wake at 5.30 naturally, you'll be up before the peacock obnoxiously wakes you up. So, you know, something to consider before purchasing your peacocks. <laughs> but no, they're gorgeous. And yes, they are they are the turkeys of this episode. <laughs> but I don't think that that was a postcard reference. I think that that was um, an English-influenced wealth reference. Mm. Like a state reference. That makes sense, because I feel like I've seen peacocks in other cartoons owned by rich people. Like, they're not, like, a point in the episode, but, like, you see them in the background. Sure. Like, I'm pretty sure that the wealthy family in Gravity Falls had some peacocks. <laughs> sure, so it's a running thing. Yeah, it must be. <laughs> but I, I believe it is based in reality, yes. So they've made their way to this mansion in the middle of this forest, and they're pretending that they are the nephews of this Quincy Endicott. And I love, I love Greg. He calls him Unky Endicott <laughs> for the whole episode. Because why not? <laughs> Somebody likened this episode to having inspiration or being like The Turn of the Screw, which is an 1898 ghost story. Because we, as you progress, this sort of turns into a ghost story. And it's not the same thing, but maybe there was some inspiration. Who knows? Their main goal here is that they need two cents to take the ferry to Adelaide. So Beatrice, I guess, is just, she wants to straight up scam this guy. Yes. <laughs> Even though it's only two cents, they can and, just ask for two cents. And Wirt's not having it until he starts realizing that this guy is really, really rich. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing that I thought was hilarious was that once Fred the horse gets wind of this, he says, I want to steal. <laughs> Just randomly. He wants to steal. <laughs> oh, dear. But Quincy is telling them about, uh, this is what you mentioned, the ghost story. He's, he's seen mm -hmm. something. It's like there's this part of his house that he doesn't remember building, mm -hmm. and this painting of this beautiful woman and and this ghost woman and he's in love with her and he's afraid to go back and look in, in case he's crazy and it's not real and <laughs> but greg really wants to see a ghost mm -hmm. so meanwhile beatrice and Wirt are trying to find money and the rest of them are off trying to find this ghost and Endicott and the ghost see each other and they both faint and all might have been lost except for there were still people who were conscious who were able to connect the dots that this was not a bad situation. These were, these were real people. <laughs> they were two people whose houses had 
I guess maybe they just kept building and then eventually they got connected and then never knew that they were connected. And they each had a plaque with their own name in the greenhouse. Uh-huh. They are both tea barons. And here's another history reference which totally escaped me when I was watching it. This points to pre-revolutionary war times. They're both mm-hmm. tea growers and one of them's super British. One of them is French. The Louisiana Purchase didn't happen until 1803. So it's like this nod to the presence of the French and the English in old time America, but a not ghost love story. (laughs) And a very cute one at that. (laughs) So John Cleese playing that part makes even more sense under that light. I didn't, I just didn't really question it when I was watching it. I didn't mm-hmm. think that deeply. No, and I didn't either. think about the tea thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, and it, and it's not coffee, it's tea. Yeah. Um, and were people even growing tea in America? Probably. But if we were importing it, oh, okay, just stop thinking, Sarah. I mean, even if you don't know for sure, it's still an interesting connection. Yes, and and should be noted of just just the French and English mm-hmm. in old time America. Somewhere in here, there was a mention from Beatrice about she used to be human. Right, so, they were confessing their she and Wirt were confessing their dark secrets to each other. With Wirt, it's that he has a crush on a girl, and he recites poetry and plays the clarinet, <laughs> and she thinks maybe the poetry part's a little weird, which. If you were going back to what time period she said in, that probably wouldn't be as weird, but who knows? (laughs) Anyway, she's a talking bird. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's been turned into a bluebird because she threw a rock at a bluebird. And her whole family are bluebirds now. Now, when you look back to the opening vignette where Beatrice is with her dog. Did we ever explain that the dog... Yeah, I did. When you look back to the opening vignette with Beatrice and her dog, you hear, I think, bird noises and her looking slightly agitated. So it's probably right before she threw the I rewatched it. Right (laughs) probably right before she threw the rock and messed up their lives. Okay. There was also a line in here where they started figuring out that there were two houses (laughs) that cracked me up. I think said something about that this French Rococo style is not aligned with Endicott's Georgian sensibilities. Which is awesome (laughs) that they threw that in there, showing how, well, A, talking about different types of architecture and interior design, and B, showing what a smart kid Wirt really (laughs) is. He, He may have a little bit of, he has some issues going on, but he's not a bad guy, and obviously he's a good nerd. Anyway, that's about all for this episode. You have the two tea barons, once business competitors, now in love. But they get the two cents. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Greg throws it in the fountain and says, Endicott had him pinned all wrong. He's got no sense, no sense at all. Which could, I've heard them say, okay, I've read, you know, this sounds like it's straight out of 1950s detective show or something. I can't remember. But an interesting theory that goes along with this in the world of over-the-garden-wall theories is that in mythology, 
to cross the river Styx, you had to pay the ferryman. And they would actually put coins on people's eyes, mm. I believe in real life, to help them cross over into the afterlife. I don't know if two cents would have been enough or whether they just, or whether they both would have needed two, uh, or whether that's, you know, somebody stretching the theory. But it's also brought into light that they may be denying or, I don't, you could maybe say cheating death when he gets rid of the coins. Like they're not actually going to go into the afterlife. If you want to throw that theory away, you can, but it's something interesting to think about that they may be, if they are suspended between life and death in a pond or whatever, that this this could be a denial of, of dying at that moment. A fight against dying. It could be. And the fairy that they take in the next episode, I believe they didn't don't they say they sneak onto it? Oh yeah. That's why the that's why the oh, frog yeah, the frog police are after them. Yeah. So the next one is called Lullaby in Frogland. Which is very interesting. The fairy that they've been trying to get to is a fairy run by frogs. And this is very particular time period that they're set in. I don't know the exact time period, I'm sure you will, but it's the riverboats. The this. river boats think Mark Twain, mm -hmm. think it's going to be a broader period than this, but think maybe 1840s. Okay. And this river boat that they're on is gorgeous. I want to go on a gorgeous river boat. I've been on a river boat, but I haven't been on one that was like really old. This one is beautifully painted. It's a paddle boat. You have all the frogs dressed in 1800s clothing. They don't seem to speak English, but they speak, they speak frog. Mm -hmm. And it's sunset time. It's just beautiful. Beautiful and bizarre at the same time. It's lovely. It's over the garden wall. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of music here, too, because the frogs have this little band, and they put together their own little show or whatever. Yes, disrupt. Uh, well, they're uh, trying to evade the frog police, and so they're <laughs> trying to hide in the band. And that's when they discover that Greg's frog has a crooner voice <laughs> and sings the frog lullaby, which basically gets them out of trouble with the cops. I, I really like the song. I think it's the the theme song for the show, but like the full version of it. Really? Pretty sure. Oh, well, I could kind of see that. It has over the garden wall in it. Mm -hmm. um, but the lyrics are so poetic. So if you're watching it, listen to the lyrics. Try and listen to the lyrics. I know it's going to be distracting. On your third time watching it, listen to the <laughs> lyrics. And as the the song ends, you know, they're just, they're paddling off into the sunset. And it's... So peaceful. And at this point, Beatrice and Wirt, probably between the last episode and this episode, they're starting to learn to appreciate each other. Mm -hmm. And Beatrice is... She basically doesn't want to take them to Adelaide's anymore because it's a trap. Mm -hmm. They disembark from this ferry, and it's nighttime, and all the frogs go and hibernate in the mud, all wearing their clothes still. Greg wants to hibernate with them. At yes. least sleep there for the night in the mud. Mm -hmm. And they want to give Greg's frog a contract 
because <laughs> he's such a good singer. <laughs> and, um, oh, looping back. These frog people, they added some really fun elements into them on the boat because you have like a little boy frog who has a lollipop with a bug in it and they're smoking bubble pipes. I think frogs may have been racing on water beetles. And not only is the boat beautifully painted and everything, but the whistle on the boat looks like a throwback to 1920s and maybe even 30s cartoons with the way whistles mm, were yeah. designed. So be on the lookout for those fun elements as well. But now on land, things don't seem to be going well for the boys anyway because Greg thinks that he's losing his frog and Wirt sees Beatrice fly off without them. Yes, so they follow her and she's going to Adelaide by herself to try and get out of this deal that she's made. She doesn't want to <coughs> hand over the boys. Adelaide's not having that. She wants a child servant and Adelaide is also voiced by John Cleese. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Which is great. It's better that they have that element of humor in there. So the boys break into this, and Wirt doesn't realize that... I don't think he realizes that Beatrice doesn't want to harm them anymore and just feels betrayed. Mm -hmm. And Adelaide tightens these ropes and captures the boys... What should be noted that I didn't notice is that Adelaide's shawl has a black widow pattern on the back of it. And the ropes are like a spider's web that the boys are being caught in. And actually one, hmm. of, one of the models for her character had extra limbs like a spider, but they thought that hmm. was too distracting and got rid of it. Interesting. So yeah, I never, I never made the spider connection. It no. was just like she was into needlework and had a weird rope trap. <laughs> she has these scissors, though, that Beatrice needs to turn her family back into people. They're shaped like a bird. Those scissors are like a real thing, though, because I've seen them in craft stores. Like, And I don't think that they're like based on Over the Garden Wall. I think Over the Garden Wall is basing them on some right. old... Right. Antique scissors. Right. Probably. I don't know what year those were made. I would have to research that. But they're very cool scissors. Mm -hmm. I thought about buying some when I saw them, but they were expensive. <laughs> and the boys managed to escape. You find out later that Wirt managed to somehow get a hold of these scissors. Or was it Greg? Either way, Wirt had the scissors. I Wirt had them. Yes. It's good that the... He had them. <laughs> Who knows what Greg might have done with them if he had them. But Beatrice opens a window, and for some reason, this makes Adelaide melt. Yes, she the fresh says, air. She says, the night air is poisonous. And I don't know if that's supposed to be a reference to something or what, but... But didn't she geez. say something about it being, it's so fresh, or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> she might have. Ew, I don't know. It just, and, and... Beatrice is like, breathe it in, lady. <laughs> so the boys should have had an idea that she was on 
their side, but that didn't seem to translate very well. Either that wart was just so ticked that he had been deceived to begin with. Mm. Sometimes, yeah, there's that temptation to punish people that were bad. <laughs> or maybe he felt like he couldn't trust her after that. I don't know. And if you notice, there's this music when she is being taken down that... A lot of this music is seems to be played on an old upright piano, which has such a distinct sound. And there's this sort of scattered music where she's being taken out or or where there's this point of conflict. And if you listen to the soundtrack, I believe that was the part on its own that sounds quite creepy and unsettling. But in the context of this episode, it fits perfectly and you're not paying as close of attention. Mm. It just enhances what is happening with the story okay i think that's the one that set the dogs off barking so much <laughs> yeah we were listening to this while we were we were watching a silent movie and we put on this the soundtrack, soundtrack because the music with the with the silent movie was rubbish <laughs> and uh, over the garden wall was far more entertaining as far yes. as background and it, and it kind of fit with the yeah old silent it movie. fit very it oddly fit anyway <laughs> But we were watching this outside because it was the middle of summer and it was just nicer outside at night. You got to the <laughs> creepy part of the soundtrack and my dogs were like, this is a bad deal, what's going on? Yeah, it's something about it just set them off. Yeah, which if you do listen to it by itself, it's pretty, un it's unsettling, <laughs> but it fits perfectly with the story here. Yeah. And in the next episode, we move on to her sister. <laughs> Yes, this episode is The Ringing of the Bell, and it stars Tim Curry as Auntie Whispers. <laughs> if you don't know Tim Curry, he is the Prince of Ham. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he would like that. He probably would like me calling him that. I don't know. He's British, and he is just so good at playing exaggerated, overly dramatic hammy type characters but yet you you kind of like it when he you know it's not like oh stop it tim he's he's just he's so good but with this one he is beyond understated but it's just it kind of needed to be tim curry yeah if they had done creepy witches voices to go along with these witch sisters, yeah. it it would make these episodes harder than what they already are. Like, well, this one especially. The the one before it with Adelaide, that's not that bad. It could have been made probably pretty disturbing if she had been creepier than she was. But with Auntie Whispers, she is so gross. <laughs> she's so she she's She's hideous. She's a, basically a monstrous-looking being. She's humanoid, but she has a giant head and, I don't know, maybe seven black nubs for teeth. <laughs> and so to have her voiced by Tim Curry helps to offset how disturbing she is. It kind of adds an element of humor, even though it's not technically humorous. It is humor. I just, like, <laughs> I just it, love it. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, and here's another thing. With this show, there 
are those who want to layer in like I was reading like when you start going down the rabbit hole of people's theories about over the garden wall I've read where they wanted to like turn Greg into a Jesus figure come on people come on he's a cute little boy let's not let's not put things where they aren't so people want to infuse well, at least one writer did infuse religious meaning into these strangely for me this episode feels like the most religious okay and at the same time for more than one reason because all of a sudden we're back in colonial what seems like puritan times because of the way they are dressed maybe i am mistyping their period dress feel free to correct me and tell me what period i should be looking at you know you have auntie whispers which i thought this was also a very interesting choice she has a long black cloak which has gotten muddied which i think is pretty historically accurate if you're wearing a long black cloak and you're going through new england dirt and she's wearing a white cap and her servant girl, Lorna, Lorna is wearing the white cap and she has, I believe, the wide white collar. It look her, their garb looks rather 1600s to me. And she, well, let's talk about how the episode unfolds and I'll try and weave that into this. I don't know how important it is, but to me, it's something that I think about. Well, it starts out with them wandering through the woods. I think they see the woodsman again, warning them again about the beast. But the beast is, like, in the background, watching. And they find this old shack, and there's a basket full of black turtles. Didn't Greg not want to go there, and Wirt did? It was like Greg was having a moment of sense where Wirt wasn't, but they went anyway. <laughs> Whereas a lot of times, Wirt, like Greg wanted to charge mm -hmm. ahead into things, and then Greg was like, oh boy, uh, about this. Hmm. I don't know. Rewatch <laughs> or not. This is an episode that I could totally skip. Like, I was lying awake last night feeling creeped out over it, <laughs> and we didn't even watch it last night. <laughs> I don't know that I would want to skip it just because I really like Tim Curry as all <laughs> You have a higher creepy tolerance than I do. Anyway, they find this basket full of black turtles in the house. And if you'll remember, the black turtles They're bad did news. something to that dog. They're bad news. Which, when I tried to figure out what's with the black turtles, the creator of this series said it's an imperfection in the quilt. Which, to, in my mind, is a reference to Native American art where they purposely put in an imperfection that might be an incorrect interpretation. Either way, it did not answer my question. I'm guessing that he put them in there because he wanted to put them in there. but Kind of like a red herring. Just as something for people to speculate on that don't actually have any solid meaning. He described Adelaide as a, as a red herring, but anyway. I could see that because in the end she was not important to the story even though she was like the whole point of their quest for half Hopefully. the show. <laughs> That makes perfect sense, yeah. Another thing, more Americana. There's like this apple tree at the beginning of this episode, I think. And rain. 
and it's just more lovely New England American art. Mm. Anyway, on to the creepy turtles. Yeah, so they meet this girl inside, Lorna, and she tells them that they need to hide because Auntie Whispers is coming. And Auntie Whispers comes in, I can smell the children. <laughs> yeah, she seems so messed up. <laughs> yes, you, the way she's talking, you think that she eats children. Yes. And then it turns out that she eats turtles. <laughs> yes, she thinks that it's just the turtles that she's been smelling. Well, Auntie Whispers eats a turtle. Yes, and... It's, it sort of sounds like she's kind of crunching on it, but I think she just sucked it out of its shell because the she shell... She gets rid of the shell, yeah. Yeah, like a pistachio. <laughs> she orders Lorna to do one or more things. And she talks like Lorna is ill, like there's something wrong with her. She says something like, keeping you busy is the only way to keep the evil spirits from driving you to wickedness. And... The way she's talking, it sounds like she's some sort of zealot, like idle hands with the devil's workshop, but taking it to an extreme level, like forcing her into servitude because she's going to be evil. But it turns out <laughs> she was being literal. So here's, here's the thing. Here's one of the things that feels so religious about this, because she, well, and, and you're bringing this up, and it's probably partly why it's stuck in my head. I think more than once she talks about wickedness. Trying to keep you from wickedness. And mm -hmm. probably maybe also the fact that she's like, don't lie to me. But especially the wickedness part. Along with the black and white clothing. It feels very Puritan. Very colonial. Very religious. But at the same time, she seems like a witch. Because she has this bell. This magical bell. Mm -hmm. Where she is controlling Lorna, make it that what you will. But that's just, to me, that was one of the, that along with the fact that Lorna is demon-possessed, <laughs> um, that's what makes this episode feel so religious to me. There you go. Yeah. I guess I never thought about it too closely, except for the fact of that one line that I mentioned, where she wants to keep the evil spirit from driving you to wickedness. That felt religious but i never thought about it too much because once you realize that it was literal like for her it wasn't like a religious thing like she read some verse that said you got to keep busy or you're going to be evil she was there's like a literal evil spirit in this girl that can come out if she's not told to do something with this magic bell wirt basically sees this situation as lorna being enslaved by a creepy people eater and from an outside context, this really looks like she is being controlled in mm -hmm. a very bad way. And he wants to help her escape. And she thinks that maybe this time it could be different. So Greg goes where he shouldn't or where he should and <laughs> disrupts Auntie Whispers. And it looks like they're in major trouble with Auntie Whispers. But... She's really just trying to protect them. Mm -hmm. And the frog eats the magic bell. <laughs> they help her escape, and like you said, Auntie Whispers has been disrupted. <laughs> but she tried. <laughs> the, 
She tries to stop her with the bell, and she doesn't have the bell anymore. All of a sudden, uh-huh. the bell is in the frog. But the thing that, at least for me, is hilarious is the way she says, no. Yes. <laughs> also, Greg's line, where I think Auntie Whispers wants to know what they're doing there, and Greg is like, we've come to burgle your turts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I, Greg has so many good lines. I love that kid. <laughs> So they they think that they're doing a great thing, escaping, and this is the part where I needed to look away. <laughs> yeah, I think Auntie Whisper says something like, she will devour you. And it turns out that Lorna is the one who eats people, not Auntie Whispers. Because she's possessed of an yes. evil spirit, and she turns into this horrible demon beast. And, like you said, the frog ate the bell. So they ring the bell inside the frog, and they say to her, go away and never come back. And apparently that's all that needed to happen. Because this... Basically <laughs> telling the evil spirit to go away. Yes. Uh, so it flies away, and she's free. And I was thinking, why didn't Andy Whispers try that? <laughs> Maybe she didn't think about it. I'm but... guessing. Let's just... Assume that this was not a codependent situation. <laughs> Auntie Whispers is sad, though, that she's not needed anymore. Yes. But at the same time, I think she's nice enough that if she had thought of it, she would have helped her to begin with mm. instead of having that whole situation. Yeah. This is another thing where at the beginning, you have a little vignette of Lorna in, you probably call it a crypt, but it's probably not a crypt. Of very meticulously oh, stacked bones. Yeah, I saw that. It reminded me of that place in I think there's more Italy than, or France. I or think there's place. more than one place like that. Mm. And there are references to like before they try to escape, I think Auntie telling asking her, Did you finish or I want you to finish stacking or sor- sorting the bones? Yeah. Yeah. So it's very dark. Yes. And if you think back to the vignette at the beginning, there were a lot of bones. Like, mm-hmm. what are they next to a highway? Like, how long have they been here? How many people has she eaten here? This is this is a like she it looked like she took out a village. Mm. So that's really dark. Yeah. No. If I were to skip one episode, it would be this episode. And if you're showing this. To children, first off, you need to be careful which children you show this series to, period. But be very careful about sharing this episode. This this cartoon is almost like for people in their 20s. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Starting age 17. I don't know. But no, um, Lorna is thankful to Auntie Whispers for taking care of her, I believe. And it's like... They're family, even though they're not family, and Lorna mm-hmm. stays with her, mm-hmm. and they're happy. So at this point, maybe Lorna is the caregiver? I don't know. Auntie Whispers looks pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> and when they're leaving, she says that they need to beware of her sister, Adelaide. <laughs> A little late, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're lost in the woods again. And the beast is watching and kind of taunting the woodsmen as well. And I think that's where that one ends. Then we get to the next episode called Babes in the Wood. This is another great one. I 
I like the music. I like the references to... There's a lot of references to old animation in here. Wirt is basically starting to give up hope, but Greg hasn't. And mm -hmm. Greg, at some point, starts to feel like, oh, he needs to figure out how to fix this. Mm -hmm. And so it's like in his dream, he's trying to figure out what to do. He's looking for guidance. It starts out there boating down the river, and you have this fish that is fishing in the background. Which is a recurring <laughs> thing, which does not, like, it's probably, who knows, maybe that's a postcard too. It could be. It probably is. That does seem like something that would be on an old postcard. <laughs> but I like the fact that it looked kind of disturbed at them when <laughs> they should be the ones being disturbed by I this didn't fish notice fishing. That. But you also have the beast singing in the background. And I don't know if we mentioned it at the beginning. We haven't yet. But the beast is voiced by an opera singer. Samuel Ramey. Yes. Who, okay, just pat them on the back for getting Samuel Ramey to play a character <laughs> for this cartoon. Like, oh my goodness, this man is one of the best. He has a great voice. Perfect for this character. I feel like I have seen him on PBS or something. Probably. So, and he's, you know, he's not a three tenor level of where everybody's going to know about him, but he's worth knowing about. And he's, he, he was just, uh, I'm proud of them for, for getting this guy <laughs> to play this character. This was wonderful. Yes. He, I love when the beast is singing in the background. You don't really know it's him right away. But I love the, the, his voice just in the background. But there's singing. also, in the beginning episode, you have the woodsman sort of sing talking, talking about the beast and how he goes through the woods singing his mournful song. And <laughs> it, it, so they start out the reference early, mm -hmm. but Samuel Ramey has a lovely speaking voice as well as an operatic singing voice. So rich, so lovely. And yes, I, I will stop getting excited about that at the moment and move on but i'm so happy about that and there was another operatic voice in this episode yes i don't know who it was but it was a woman i wrote it down deborah voigt where's she from know she, anything i don't know what else she would have played other than just being in operas i meant country but that's okay <laughs> uh, <laughs> i didn't write that down but talk about gathering all kinds of people mm -hmm. to sing for this, uh, yeah, that was another thing. The Blasting Company, there's a song in here where they had to have been influenced by another famous singer. We'll get to that. Well, at this point, I think they come to land, and this is where Wirt is pretty much starting to lose hope. He's blaming Greg for getting them into this mess, and... I think Greg has a line here that says something like, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. That's what the old people say. <laughs> <laughs> so Wirt tells Greg to figure out what to do. And they go to sleep under a tree. And this is where you have all the references to old animation. Which somebody said that this was, I don't know if all of them were creepy. Honestly, you're probably going to be less creeped out far less creeped out watching this episode than a lot of the original 1930s cartoons. <laughs> 1930s cartoons can be... There's something unsettling about a lot of what went down then. This one, 
they kept a lot of it pretty cute. Mm -hmm. Weird. Very weird. Yes. Like you have <laughs> floating heads with wings that come to take Wurtz, not Wurtz, Greg's spirit off to dreamland. Mm -hmm. Somewhere he ends up in like a little magical donkey cart. <laughs> which was cute. And there's lots of old-ish sounding music here. Another catchy song, Everything is Nice and Fine. Which was very interesting how they did that because it has that old, not, I'm not going to classify it as big band, but old band, old jazz band style. But it was like they got all their little child voice actors to sing the song, not perfectly, mm -hmm. but in that style. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a very interesting choice. Yeah, it added something more to it than if, than if it, it had been just... totally perfect yeah it was like yeah like i don't know and it just it they, felt more true to the era they were going for maybe i don't it's it's over the garden wall <laughs> they they did it their way and the old way <laughs> um you like the scene with the greeting committees up in cloud <laughs> city it reminded me of the Munchkin Greeting Committee, or whatever you want to call them, oh. in Wizard of Oz. Well, except it went on for longer. Well, maybe not longer, but it was different. But just the fact that they had so many people coming to greet the character. In this case, Greg. In that case, Dorothy. I like that they had, they threw in the, the women's greeting committee, and they had sort of, they made it a little fancy, like, where's the auxiliary <laughs> greeting committee? And Craig wants to know if there are any more. And all of a sudden there's just this really unhappy dog with a rain cloud looking slightly crazed. It's like, well, that's enough. I love that. <laughs> and this is very, very 1930s cartoon. Like if you missed any other references to old cartoons... If you can't get it in this one, then you have you've never seen an old cartoon <laughs> yeah. in your life, probably. Yeah, no, this is this is just like all the animation is straight up nineteen thirties animation. The way they ran, the mm -hmm. way uh, it's just at some point, and this has its own plot line within the plot line because there's a bad, there's a dilemma, there's a bad guy, and Greg defeats the bad guy mm -hmm. because they accidentally release the North Wind. Uh huh. And they kind of tie it back to the real world, too, because the old north wind is blowing, and in, it goes back to the real world, them under the tree, shivering right. as the wind is picking up. Almost like an Alice thing of where, how much is reality influencing the dream? Mm -hmm. And here's the part where the song for the old north wind, not only does it sound like old jazz, but the way the Blasting Company sang it sounded so much like Randy Newman. Like, You've Got a Friend in Me, mm. Randy Newman. Yeah. But when I tried to research it, I don't think he sang it. But I do believe that that band enjoys listening to Randy Newman. <laughs> and somehow they managed to make it sound so much like him that it, it wants to play mind games with you. Mm. So that was a thing. <laughs> but, yeah, you have this little cartoon fight in a cloud cottage. <laughs> and Greg emerges with the North Wind in a bottle that says Old Windbag. <laughs> and he, for his valiant effort, is granted a wish by... What would you... What did she call herself? Did they call her anything? I don't remember, but she was credited as the Queen of the Clouds, I believe. Yes. 
Not to be confused with the Queen of Heaven. So if you want to start making religious references, don't necessarily do that here. <laughs> Greg is wanting to... I think he wants to get words, but the Queen says something like the Beast had already claimed him. And then Greg says that he knows what he wants to wish for. And I think he whispers in her ear and then goes back to the real world under the tree and... Greg is saying to Wirt, who is still asleep, that he's sorry that he got us lost, and he leaves with the beast. Which this is the part where I think they want to make a Jesus connection, but please don't do that. Greg's a nice little boy trying to save his brother. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I would see a Jesus I think, connection. I think that's that. too much of a stretch. Yeah. It doesn't seem appropriate for... But just look at Greg as a good little boy who wants to help his brother. Mm -hmm. I think they even wanted to make that connection with Wirt. It's like, no. Definitely not Wirt. I could see it more with Greg. Even though I don't see it with Greg, I could see it more for Greg. For <laughs> Either way, he's this innocent little boy who goes off to try and make things right, even though it's not really his fault or his mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. So Wirt wakes up and freaks out. He ends up falling into the water, and he's rescued by Beatrice and that fish we saw at the beginning. Good fish. And that's the end of the episode. And then we come to Into the Unknown, which is where you find out the big twist, which I always forget is a twist because I'm so used to the story now, but the first time you watch it, you don't you know. Re you realize that th there's a big twist here in that these are kids from a modern world, and I don't know exactly the year. I'm, I want to guess like 80s or 90s because they have cassette I read tapes. somewhere 80s, which I would prefer that people reference it as, like, as the 80s. Like, yeah, he's running around with a cassette tape. Mm -hmm. So either he's a hipster kid <laughs> or this is the 80s. But somebody said that it was similar to movies in the 80s, too. The mm -hmm. way it, they, it wouldn't surprise me. The it way they designed it. So... Let's go with that. Yeah. So, it's Halloween, and he has, Wirt has a tape that says, For Sarah, which this is the girl that he'd referenced in a previous episode as having a crush on. Mm. And this is where you find out that these clothes that they've been wearing, we never really talked about it, but they have been wearing throughout the whole series some rather strange clothes. But the series is so strange that there's only so much you yeah, probably didn't think about it. I didn't think about it at all until we got to this episode the first time I watched it. Basically, Wirt sort of looks like he's dressed as a garden gnome with no beard. And Greg has a teapot upside down on his head. But in this episode, you find out that the reason that he's wearing an upside down teapot on his head is because... He's supposed to be dressed like an elephant. <laughs> Which is probably his creative solution to a costume. Yes, and I thought that was great because that's such a little kid thing to see a teapot and think, I could be an elephant if I put that on my head. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Wirt was just trying to make do with, oh, it was like a sand hat that he cut mm -hmm. the fluff off of and part of a Civil War outfit which is where his cape came from mm -hmm. which you also see this is so great because he's standing in front of a mirror at one point with his cape blowing because he has a fan turned on himself <laughs> like he wants to look epic <laughs> and, and this is an aside but uh, i remember this comedian talking about and this is not true for all men but talking about how 
men needed women to tell them what to wear because if it was up to men, we'd all be wearing capes. <laughs> you know, and how much he loved capes and being, you know, he wanted to be able to flip it around, something like that. It was so cute, but you can edit that out if you need to. But it was that that scene made me think of that. At some point in here, Wirt has told Greg about the tape, and Greg decides that he's going to give it to Sarah for him, and he runs off with it to deliver it. They're sort of intercepted by these girls, which aren't mean girls. They're just regular high school girls that want to tease him about it, and, mm-hmm. and I, what that he has to hurry up because they think Jason Funderburger is going <laughs> to... Yes, he's so worried about this Jason Funderburger, who, the way he's describing it, you just assume that it's going to be this buff, muscly jock. Football jock. (laughs) And it's this really awkward It's this tiny little guy who has a kind of nerdy, whiny voice. (laughs) (laughs) And and he's he's very awkward. Jason seems to have his own fan club. That one other girl who's like, you can hold my hand. (laughs) So nobody's really left out. It's not as dramatic as work thinks it is, but he just has, you know, he's insecure. Mm -hmm. So at some point, this tape ends up in Sarah's jacket, which she she still doesn't know about it. And they're trying to get it back. And there's one little part in here that it wasn't, like, essential to the story, but (laughs) there's a policeman in a car (laughs) watching all these Well, it is. Well, he does turn up later, but He's he's watching these kids like crossing the street, and there's two kids dressed like robbers. And he's he uses his police microphone. And he's like, "Hey, kids, you're under arrest." No, I'm just getting happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and and what was the other one? Stop running in the street. You're just getting happy Halloween. <laughs> I liked the policeman. The, the cop is in a good mood, and he feels like having fun with the kids, uh-huh. which backfires later. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really even think about it. That. that that does backfire on him. That is kind Hugely. of the reason that everything uh, happens. That's, yeah. So it sets it up. Yeah. So eventually they're going to have this party in a graveyard. And they talk about they're going to be drinking age-appropriate drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where you see the grave that says Quincy Endicott. And I don't know that Wirt and Greg... They're, like, sort of following and hiding. They're trying to find a way to get the tape back. Sarah wanted him to come, but instead of coming straight out, he's trying to sneak there and get the tape back. And Greg blows his cover. Mm -hmm. It's just this silly, awkward teenage moment. It was such a teenage moment. Like, we can see you. (laughs) Funderburker's trying to tell a scary story and hold Sarah's hand. Like, you can stop holding my hand now. And the other girl, you can hold my hand. (laughs) But eventually their party is broken up by the police, sort of. But he's kidding again. Yeah, he's like, what is this, some kind of witch's gathering? <laughs> Just kidding. You know, you know, like, but they're all freaking out. And he wants them to calm down and not get hurt and not climb up on the wall. Because he and Greg are climbing this wall. Whereas the others, I think, have scattered in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But they're all scattering. Like, it's it's an irrational... Oh, probably hyped up group Halloween setting of like, ah, everybody run, it's the cop. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not in trouble. (laughs) But they end up over the wall. And here's, here's the thing. The whole thing of where does over the garden wall come from, you can try, like, think about it. 
it's not a garden wall, but the gate to the cemetery says Eternal Garden. Mm. I didn't <laughs> notice that. I saw a still of it. I don't know that I noticed. I may have noticed the first time that we watched it, because we've watched this series a couple of times now. Um, but as far as I know, you can double check, but the gateway says Eternal Garden. So hmm. over the garden wall, all of a sudden, is this? it's pretty dark. Yeah. Um, I suppose they meant for that to be nice when they set up, if anybody has set up a cemetery that way, they probably <laughs> meant for it to be nice, but it sounds rather dark. And I think that that makes the most sense as far as over the garden wall. Yeah. Well, that is a very good theory and probably true. But as far as like over the garden wall being where all the dead people are, over the garden wall, in this case, they're outside the cemetery because they leave. Well, they had to go over the garden wall that was the eternal garden. Yeah. So either way it works. Yeah, but I just mean, like, as far as, like, if they're meeting dead people on their journey, they're on the outside of the cemetery at this point. Yeah, there, there there's room for yes, theorizing. There's, there's a lot of room for theorizing. Here's another thing that's cool. Before they fall into the pond, they are on train tracks. Mm -hmm. So, already, this train, it's not a modern train. Think about it. It was like a steam engine. So, hmm. as far as hovering between life and death in the pond, it's almost like they are already in an alternate reality as soon as they hop the wall. Hmm. Because it could have been... You know, just a train left over, but that's not super likely. Mm -hmm. And another thing, if you're not paying attention, or if you don't know, the song that is sung at this time about the train, the style of it sounds so 20s or 30s to me. It sounds so much like, say, Woody Guthrie. And there's this whole... I don't know, train, hobo, culture, whatever, in music back at that time. So that's another historical cultural reference. And I believe that either the Blasting Company or the creator of the series or both of them were into Woody Guthrie. Hmm. So I think there's some of that. There, there has to be some of that influence coming through in that song. And I've listened to the, the that type of music from that period. So to me, that kind of kind of stuck to me as well mm -hmm. and just yeah but then they fall into the pond so were they already in an alternate reality or were they hovering between life and death in a pond you decide and that's basically the end except you pick up where the previous episode left off with Wirt waking up after falling in this other pond and he's now in a bluebird's nest and he sees this bluebird and says, Beatrice? And she says, you know my daughter? Where is she? So this is Beatrice's family. And I don't know if you noticed or if you read, but Beatrice's mother is played by Shirley Jones. Really? <laughs> yes. Cool. And, and how did he end up in that nest? Like, did she drop him off outside of the tree? It's not like she could lift him into the tree. There were so many bluebirds, maybe they dragged him in there, but that doesn't make fully make sense. Well, this fish could sit in a boat and fish, so maybe he could somehow hop away. And we may just have to accept it as part of that universe. <laughs> yeah. 
Either way, it's a very nurturing family trying to take care of Wart, and obviously Beatrice has left him there. She has this thing of she has to be able to turn her family back into people before she's going to face them again. I don't think they feel that way about her, mm -hmm. but she's on this quest. Mm -hmm. So, hence her family not seeing Beatrice, but being left with Wart to take care of him. Mm -hmm. But then Wart leaves, and the bluebirds are... They're trying to tell him to wait, wait until the storm dies down, because at this point I think it's like a blizzard. Mm, and yeah. I think she says, you'll be no good to your brother dead. And he says, I was never any good to him alive either. And then he leaves. So he, he that's one of the things. The woodsman tried to rebuke him at the beginning, saying that he was the elder brother and that he was responsible. And that's kind of a recurring theme, kind of, throughout this of work taking responsibility for taking care of Greg. And at this point, he's prepared to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe there's not not like intense hatred, but some animosity and agitation. They're stepbrothers. And Greg and his and Wirt's stepdad have, you know, tried to convince him to join the band. Like, it doesn't sound like they're trying to do anything to hurt him or, or anything bad like that. Mm -hmm. It's just that he's having a hard time adjusting. I don't know. Just having a hard time with his current reality and growing up and yeah. everything. But now he does care enough about Greg and about being responsible that he's willing to go and risk his own well-being to take care of him. Mm -hmm. Good maturing in the story. Yes. <laughs> So now it's the final episode, titled The Unknown, and here you have the Beast making Greg run errands for him. It's just random weird errands. Like, he wants him to get the sun, but it's a riddle because he gives him a teacup. So he figures out the problem by putting the teacup on a stump and then situating himself in such a way that if you sit there long enough, it'll look like the sun is setting into the teacup. Mm-hmm. Clever. Yes. So he's just basically giving him weird little errands like that. I'm not sure exactly But it's why. like Greg never loses hope, but at the same time, he's probably going to freeze to death. Yeah, and, and you can tell he's exhausted. So at that point, I suppose the idea is for him just to freeze to death so that he can die and turn into... Because mm -hmm. I don't know if you completely have to lose hope. You may just have to be lost. I don't know. That doesn't fully make sense to me, because Greg shouldn't... Well, maybe he's just trying to force him to do so many chores that he's going to eventually lose hope, that he's assuming that Greg will lose hope. I don't know. Because he doesn't really know Greg. He doesn't know how much of an eternal optimist that he is. I don't know, but either way, he was turning into a tree, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you have that line about... There's already leaves growing inside of him. <laughs> he spits them out. No, I was just eating leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> He's probably hungry. I know when Wirt does find Greg again, he has wood growing around him. He is becoming an Edelwood tree. Mm -hmm. And here's a revelation for the woodsman because the woodsman never realized that the trees were people mm, yeah. that he was chopping up to feed this 
feast of lost hope. Mm -hmm. So he, poor guy, is a very, very deceived character. He's a well-meaning character, mm -hmm. but he has a lot of grief going on. When Wart goes out searching for Greg, he and Beatrice literally run into each other. Yeah. In the storm. And at some point they they make their way to the mill, and to me it looks like it's kind of fixed. Like it didn't look as in shambles as it was when they were last there. But the woodsman was getting desperate for wood. He found the two sticks mm -hmm. that he had initially tossed aside in the beginning episode. And it's like he's just trying to get by. Like he's... He's mm. running out of this wood. So the beast is probably even more desperate to have these boys mm. turn yeah. into trees. One thing that I was going to ask you, and I forgot to ask at the beginning, all this talk about the Edelwood trees. Is an Edelwood tree a thing? Is that a real mm -hmm. plant? I believe I, so. I didn't know if it was something they made up for this or if it, it was might a real mean plant. like white wood or valiant wood or something. Can you Google it real quick? Yeah, it's kind of like an important part of the story. <laughs> I might have researched that a little bit more. Find anything? Everything that is coming up is over the garden wall related. Okay, so Adelwood trees don't seem like they're a real thing. If they are, please tell us that they are. But there's a speculation that the Adelwood trees mean noble wood trees, but there are no Adelwood trees in reality. It's for the series. Make of it what you will. But either way, the woodsman seems to be running low. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the woodsman is figuring out what has actually been going on. And he never meant to be chopping up trees made out of humans. Mm -hmm. he, he's not happy about this. And he doesn't want anything to happen to the boys. Where in there is his, is he like, his daughter wouldn't have wanted this? Well, when Wirt finds Greg, Greg, it seems like he's falling asleep. Like he's succumbing to the yeah. beast. And one thing we didn't mention is he's also been carrying around this rock that he's been using to say rock facts, which is basically made up facts that he thinks are funny. Mm -hmm. And he took it in the previous episode... He took this rock out of, out of this old lady's garden. So now that he's basically dying, he's upset that he has stolen this rock and he's wanting Wirt to give it back for him. Mm -hmm. And Wirt is trying to keep him from going to sleep. And the beast says that he can put his spirit in the lantern. I think at this point, the woodsman is probably seeming somewhat uncooperative and... The beast is probably looking for a more yeah. vulnerable lantern keeper. Yeah. So he tells him that as long as the lamp stays lit, his soul will live on. And then at first it seems like he's buying this and he says, wait, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's, he's figured it out. He says, it's almost like your soul is in the lantern. And he gives the lamp back to the woodsman. And they leave, and this is the point where the woodsman now realizes that all this time he's been tricked. And you basically realize that this is the end of their but agreement it, or whatever, because he blows out the lantern flame. Which took courage on his part, which wouldn't have really been possible if it hadn't been for knowing the boys and mm -hmm. 
and having them show what was really going on. Mm -hmm. But then when they're leaving, Wirt gives the scissors from Adelaide's to Beatrice because apparently in all the confusion, he had somehow been able to take them. And there was a Probably line there, cut like, themselves free, too. Yeah. He, she's like, why didn't you give them to me before? He's like, well, I was mad at you before. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But then they end up waking up in the real world. They're in the hospital. and. But I think it shows them, doesn't it show them being pulled out of the pond? I believe so, but I think it's more like images. And then the ride to the hospital, siren yeah. going... Yeah, because there's that song playing. So they're back in the real world, but they still have the frog, and the frog still has the bell. Mm-hmm. So there's even more of a question of... It was totally real. Yeah. It has to be real, because they go back into the unknown, and you see that the woodsman has regained his courage to go mm. home, He's on yeah, the front the, porch. There's like a prologue where it's like a montage of all the different characters right. you've met. Which the woodsman, I think, is probably the most important out of all of them. Mm -hmm. Because he's sitting on his porch and all of a sudden his daughter comes out of the house. And I think really all he needed all along was the courage to go back home. And then you see... What, are, what do they have for Endicott? Are they just... I think it was him and the... The other tea, Baron. Oh, Marguerite Grey. Sounds like Earl Grey tea. <laughs> yeah, so you basically get happy endings for everybody, because you get them, and then you have Beatrice with the dog that was the wolf. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a little bit with Auntie Whispers and Lorna. They're sitting at a table. A bit at the circus. And then you get another quick little revelation all the way back to... Hard times at the Huskin Bee. Enoch the <laughs> giant pumpkin man was actually a cat. <laughs> a little black cat popped out of the top. Yes. <laughs> so, hence my reference to black cats and potential, you know, being thought of as, I think, guides for the dead. And mm. But it's a very cute little black cat. So yes. I, I love that. I love that they have the, this giant foreboding pumpkin of just this little kitten inside. Yeah, if you take away <laughs> whatever, if you don't layer the other meaning onto it, or even if you do, I don't know, it's an adorable cat. Yes. And it helps to make that pumpkin far less creepy mm -hmm. to know that there was a cat in there. <laughs> so... Yeah, I love that. So yeah, that's Over the Garden Wall. Yes, and... So you have people who put all kinds of meaning into it and the creator of it said that basically people done a pretty good job of finding all of the meanings that they had infused into it and some that I think he said that they hadn't thought of but wished that they had. <laughs> um, one of the things that we haven't mentioned, which is kind of an aside, is just the beginning title cards for each episode. Mm -hmm. look like these really strange wood cuttings or something. Mm -hmm. And they're so old-timey and artistic and strange, almost like a tombstone or something. So for me, that's one of the, actually one of the most interesting things about the series, aesthetically. Um, 
He also, the creator said that he got inspiration from trade cards and chromolithographs as well as uh, the postcards in Ottoman New England and General Americana. And mm -hmm. So I guess the overall theme, besides it just being confusing and bizarre and everything, is that there's so much... I, I wish, you know, it'd be nice to have a dollar for every time I've said Americana in this episode. It's one of those shows where it is a show. Watching it this time, I didn't feel this way when we watched it maybe a few years ago. Oh, it's like, it makes me want to be proud of America. <laughs> like, it makes me want to find more of the interesting history and more of the goodness and more of the coziness mm -hmm. of America. Right now, I feel like there's this push to not be proud of where we live. And like we were discussing the other day, if, if every country was held to this litmus test of if they did bad things, not being proud of them. Like, would anybody left? Would anybody be left besides Switzerland, who could be proud of their country? And I realize that there have been injustices, but there's also this interesting past that's worth knowing about, and not just being so hyper focused on the present mm -hmm. that we miss all the interesting things that happened in the past and people haven't changed as much as we think they've changed. Mm -hmm. So there will be recurring things of human behavior, good and bad throughout our history, <laughs> including the present. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's one of those things where you have to take the bad with the good and choose what you're going to put more focus on. But if you do watch this cartoon, please let it inspire you to get out of the present and research the past and, and know more of... Really, that's one of the things. It's not just the people. The landscape mm -hmm. in this cartoon points to the beauty of America. And, you know, let that make you think about the diversity and beauty of America and... Even if you don't agree with a single human being in the country, <laughs> you can still enjoy the precious land that you live on. Yeah. There you go. My little sermonette. We kind of figure out some way to wrap up this podcast. <laughs> Might as well do it with soapboxing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good place as any to call it a day love america <laughs> and maybe watch this cartoon depending on how much creepiness you can handle okay well i guess that'll be it and we'll see you next time bye
Thanks to Sarah for joining me for this episode of iHeart Animation on iHeart Movies. Sarah will be back in a few episodes for a very interesting episode of the Disney Movie Marathon. But in the meantime, in the next episode, I'll be joined by my friend Chelsea Robson, who's coming back to follow up the episode we recorded last year talking about the 1953 film Sabrina. This time we'll be talking about the 1995 remake starring Harrison Ford. Chelsea and I had a great conversation and I can't wait to share it with you, so we'll see you next time on iHeart Movies.